Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Inside Business and Technology. I'm Kieran Hancock, finance correspondent of the Irish Times, and in this week's show I'll be discussing pensions with my colleague Dominic Coyle and industry expert David Kingston. But first I'm going to talk to Tom Lyons, who spent an interesting evening in Monaco last week with Michael Smurfett, one of Ireland's most successful businessmen. Now, Tom, it must have been a fascinating interview on many different levels. For the benefit of listeners, you might just tell us who is Michael Smurfett and how did he make his money? Michael Smurfett is one of the all-time greats of Irish business. Uh, For 50 years, he was chief executive and chairman of... Uh, the Jefferson Smurfett Group. And this was, this was a small box maker which started out in Rat Mines and gradually grew bigger and bigger until it was the biggest in Ireland. Then it was the biggest in the UK. Then it became big in America, Latin America, China, until eventually it was the biggest paper and packaging company in the world uh, with a turnover of billions and uh, employing some 70,000 people. Uh, he is, he's just, and he was the leader during this period of time and he, he's quite an extraordinary uh, business person. What was his background? His background is, uh, it's, it's, it's very humble background. I mean, he was born in 1936 in the UK. Uh, his, his father was a Protestant born in Sunderland uh, who married uh, a, a Belfast girl, a Catholic uh, called uh, Anne McGee. And they, they started out in business with his father running a small a tailor. Uh, and then through his mother's family and the intervention of a priest, the, the priest who married them, uh, he, he started running in his part time uh, this box maker in Dublin. And then eventually this, this business became more and more successful and required more of his time. So he moved the family from England t- to Ireland. And uh, gradually from the age of 12 onwards, uh, Michael was lured into the business. And at the age of 15, his father told him, look, you know, you're, you're coming out of school. You're not going to university. I'm going to make you into a businessman. And what was the high point of his career, did he tell you? Well, I think for him, the, the the high point of his career was in when he took the company, eventually he took the company private in 2005. Uh, and this is a company called Madison Dearborn. And he said that, you know, this was a, a, a tough decision, but it released a fortune for shareholders and for his own family. And he felt that this was the apex of his career when he sat down with his brothers and he tells this great story of uh, that they were in the Chinese room of the Dorchester Hotel he sat down with his brothers and said, and he discussed, look, you know, he's, that this is as good as it gets and we need to get out of this and we need to let the business move on. And he decides to sell out and he says that that was the, that was the high point of his, of his long And long this career. was very much a family concern. It wasn't just Michael Smurfett, his brothers were in the business too. 
Yeah, that comes across very strongly. I mean, he, he's 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 one brother, Alan, who who in the book he describes. You know, when he was starting out, Alan was a professional card player, and he played with Lord Lucan and these type of people, uh, and then went into the business, put the gambling behind him, focused on the business. And then his brother Dermot was also very involved, and then a third brother called Jeff. Uh, so he, there was four brothers, uh, all very actively involved, of course, along with his father, uh, Jefferson Smurfett, who, who's a big influence on him. And that comes across very strongly in the book. And then, as we now know, that like as the, as the company has moved on, we've seen, you know, uh, Michael's son, Tony, uh, has taken the role of a chief operating officer with with the overall uh, Smurfit Kappa Group, as it's now called. As a fair to say, in 85, Smurfit was approached by Morgan Stanley to, f- to form a joint venture with Container Corporation of America. That, that, that deal, if you like, really transformed the company. Yeah, I think that was the deal that, uh, you know, put Smurfit on the world stage. Uh, you know, it went from being a very, you know, a very interesting and very fast growing company to, to, you know, suddenly he did a deal which, you know, he calculates, uh, you know, released, returned a billion euros to shareholders. They still owned 50% of a very large business. And he tells a story about how, you know, when he did this deal with Morgan Stanley, he managed to uh, convince them to to sell the Latin American business and all the businesses outside North America to them for 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 book value, which which ultimately, you know, led to 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 an additional hundreds of millions or even billions uh, in additional value for the company. Now, he's had a very colourful personal life, I think it's fair to say, and uh, he's perhaps best known to a lot of Irish people um, for the Ryder Cup and the K-Club. How did that come about? Well, the Ryder Cup is is an extraordinary story, and he tells about, you know, how the, you know, the Jefferson Smurfit group had had a long, you know, experience in sponsoring golf. And he said that, you know, that he that this this that, that they said, look, we are we'll be prepared to, to continue to sponsor golf in Europe if you're prepared to bring this event to, to Ireland. And uh, no, no sooner was the, the deal done in terms of Ireland than he was saying, look, it's got to be the K-Club, which is has been the love of his life and which he was involved uh, in since since the late 80s. And he tells the story of how he developed it initially as very much a private member's club and then for himself and his friends. And then the company takes it over for various tax reasons. And he, he tells how how he expanded and grew it. And then he tells later about how it fell in, into difficulties uh, as the Irish economy went down and he ended up uh, having to buy it back from the National Asset Management Agency. So it's a it's 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 a big part of his life. And you can really tell that like he does really love the place and, and, and find himself very relaxed when he's there. And the economy collapsed, of course, a couple of years after the Ryder Cup was hosted in Ireland. So has he had the dividend from the K-Club that perhaps he expected? Well, I think he's found, you know, that he, he's had to pick up the bills for the K-Club because he was in there in a joint venture with Jerry Gannon, a developer. This guy, you know, the developer is obviously in financial trouble and Smurfit was stuck, you know, paying the bills to keep the whole, keep the place open and keep everybody in And green jobs. fees have collapsed. Yeah. Uh, so he said it, it, it has been very tough, uh, but he did manage to buy buy the K-Club back from uh, NAMA and now he says that he'd like to invest in the K-Club and he thinks it needs to be expanded he thinks the hotel needs to be bigger there needs to be more conference facilities but he's saying look you know we agreed the the, the rates uh, with Kildare County Council you know back in the boom we need to revisit them and they need to come down a little bit in order to make it make the club uh, economically viable again Now we spoke about his highs what about the lows in his career? I think the big low for, for Michael Smurfett and you know, this is something that he still sounds you know pretty angry about today is that when his uh, 
he he was charged at the end of 1989. Uh, he he acquired a, a company in Spain, and uh, the people he acquired, they, like he announced, look, we're going to pay 68 million for this for this particular company, and he handed over the check. The people that he handed over to the, the check to uh, appear to have sent it this way and that way, and the next thing he knew, he was being charged with aiding and abetting a crime. Uh, so Smurfett says, you know, that it took him three or four years to clear his name, and during that time, you know, he'd have to go up to the Spanish ambassador and, and show his passport to show that he was still around and prepared to face this case. And uh, you know, he tells about how he, he eventually, you know, he 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 he's cleared. Uh, and he gets the phone call and he's in his private jet flying to Barbados, as you do. Uh, and, um, you know, it's he says for the first time he cracks open a bottle of champagne uh, uh, on the jet and uh, finishes it all the way because he's he's so relieved and happy to be finally have this behind him. And he subsequently got an honour from King Juan Carlos, is that right? Uh, he he did. Uh, he was awarded one of the highest honours in Spain. And uh, this is something that, you know, he said that the king sort of explained to him, look, we made a mistake. You know, we dragged your name through the middle. Uh, and this is sort of payback. Now, what about telecom, Aaron? Did you get into that affair? Yeah, we, we did. Uh, this, is, like, I think, like Michael Smurf, has two things to say about the telecom, Aaron. Number one, you know, he was there a long time, and he said, you know, one of the key things he he feels that he did for the country was that the, the, the Irish government was committed to using old technology uh, and they were going to make sure, like we were only going to move up one notch in terms of our, in terms of our phones or in our phone systems. And he said he insisted, uh, along with some of the key guys in Telecom Air, and he, they, like, they, they just said, look, we're going to push forward and we're going to move to the latest uh, technology available in the world. And he, he says that was one of the things he thinks uh, that made Ireland attractive to the Microsofts and the Intels when they were thinking about coming out, uh, coming, coming here. But then, of course, the second issue was uh, how it all finished up, Kieran, which is something, uh, you know, he wasn't quite so positive about. And what's his view now of Charlie Hoy? Well, his view is, uh, you know, as you know, the, the telecom affair was to do with, with property. And, you know, there's an allegation that Michael Smurfa was the secret beneficiary of a property deal. And Charlie Hawhey came on the radio on the very day that, that Smurfett was opening the K-Club. And he said, look, I think that uh, he should step aside uh, whilst the investigation is continued. And step Smurf- aside from Telecom Aaron. Yeah, step aside as chairman. Uh, and Smurfett was furious at this because he felt that, you know, he hadn't, his name was going to be cleared. He knew he was in the clear. And ultimately, when the, the, when the report came out two years later, sure enough, his name was cleared. But Smurfett says, you know, that he, he, he still feels very sore towards Charlie Hawhey over this and he said that they never spoke again and unlike uh, you know other Taoiseachs which you know he said would naturally have progressed onto the board of of the Jefferson naturally <laughs> of the Jefferson Smurfit group he said that there is never a chance uh, that Charlie was going to get anywhere near it Does he speak about his personal life at all about his marriages or why he moved to Monaco or his yachts? Uh, yeah, no, he talks about, you know, he, he was married twice, uh, once to uh, Norma and the second time to Brigitte. And he says he's incredibly um, positive about Norma and who he's described as a wonderful person, a wonderful lady and somebody who, is, who allowed him become the man and develop uh, as a businessman. Uh, he's less positive about his second uh, wife, who's a, a Swedish lady. Uh, and he, 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 it's, it's, it's more what he, he, he doesn't say than what he does. Uh, he doesn't say too much about her, to be honest, in the book in terms of how things ended up. Uh, so he, 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 he talks about his, his love life. He says, you know, that he, 
he regrets getting married for the second time. Uh, he talks about how much, you know, he cares about his, his four children with Norma and his two children with Brigitte. And uh, he talks a little bit too about, you know, you know, or makes references to, you know, his current girlfriend. Uh, but he doesn't go too much in, into too much detail about uh, where things are at the moment. And he was quite a shy young man, wasn't he? I mean, uh, sort of love, if you like, and having a bit of fun came a bit later in his life. He was quite a serious uh, and shy young man. Yeah, no, I mean, that was one of the things that, like, I think he felt that he missed out on his childhood because, you know, he went to Clongos as a boarder. So he, he wasn't coming across many opportunities to meet girls there. When he came, when he was taken out of school by his father, he was so busy working uh, and quite a, a diligent uh, young man that, you know, he didn't get a chance to go to any of the dances. And then the next thing, he fell ill in his 20s and ended up in a, a sanat- in a sanatorium being treated for TB. So he sort of missed out on a lot of the things which uh, other people would have taken for granted. Did he give any insight into his relationships with other successful Irish business people, Dennis O'Brien, uh, Dermot Desmond, Tony O'Reilly? Uh, he, he spoke about all three uh, and he said that, you know, he one of the people he particularly cited was Tony Ryan, the founder of Ryanair, who he said, you know, he thought that he was a, a really amazing businessman. Uh, he said that O'Reilly, he knew him pretty well when he was younger and he was very impressed by him back then, uh, but wouldn't know him as well today. And then Dermot Desmond and Dennis O'Brien, he's he's very positive about the two of them, and he explains in the book how how he bo- how he, he he invested in both of them very early on, and he saw their talent and ability, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons why they you know they launched uh, they they launched Michael Smurfett's book this week. It, it was returning the favor. Now you visited his home in uh, Monaco. Beautiful uh, views of the bay from the eighth floor of the Le Flow Stand Tower, I believe. Um, tell us what you got for dinner. Well, <laughs> it was, it was really, uh, it was, it, it, I think the dinner, uh, it's, it's, it summed up a lot about Michael Smurf. It showed, you know, that like this guy, he's an extraordinary guy on the one hand. I mean, we're in this incredible setting. And then he's a very ordinary guy on the other. I mean, the main, you know, we had a, a light pass at the start. And then the main uh, dinner was, uh, you know, chicken and chips uh, served with the absolute best wine, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so it was that combination of, you know, he's both this ordinary guy from a very ordinary, humble background. And yet this extraordinary guy, you know, living in one of the best spots in all of Monaco, which is really saying something. Dessert afterwards? Uh, there, there was a small amount. It was a sort of a fruit, very healthy uh, dessert, and that was one of the things that kind of struck me about uh, Michael Smurf. You know, he's 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 very healthy guy. You know, I mean, he exercises every day and looks after him, and uh, he's still the same weight that he was in his twenties, which uh, I wish we all could say. Yeah. Now he's still a substantial shareholder in Smurfit Kappa, um, and there's rumours that Gary McGann, the chief executive, um, might be stepping aside in the near future. Uh, did he perhaps indicate who he'd like to be Gary's successor? Well, yes, yes, Karen. I mean, there's two names that have been sort of mentioned in the in the media, which is his son Tony, uh, who's the chief operating officer, and then there's the chief financial officer, a guy called Ian Curley, and. Uh, when I put that to Michael Smurford, I mean, he paused and thought about it. So I, th- I think he was quite careful with his answer. And he basically said, you know, I've no influence on that decision. It's a matter for the board and the nominations committee. But I'm proud of Tony and his achievements. And he earned it, as in my experience, operation is the most important and hardest skill set to master. And that's all he said. But uh, I think maybe you could read between the lines there. That, uh, you know, he thinks operational ability is uh, very important. And looking to the future, he has a very special uh, plan for his 80th birthday. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Uh, yeah, this is a this is a trip. You know, I think we'd all love to be invited on. Uh, Maybe he, you will. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. He'll have to read the article first <laughs> and listen to this podcast. Uh, he he's booked a, a cruise liner to take a group of friends all the way from Mumbai to Athens, uh, which is an absolutely amazing, you know, mm. seven thousand kilometer journey up through the Suez Canal, and then. From Athens, uh, his girlfriend is going across with with his yacht. Uh, the Lady Anne McGee is going across from Monaco, or it's being brought across the Car- from the Caribbean first, where it is at the moment. Uh, then it's coming across from Monaco to Athens, picking them all up and bringing them back in time for the F one Grand Prix, where he's going to meet up with with uh, Prince Albert, who's uh, one of his, his his great friends. It's a tough life. Finally, in summing up, what will Michael Smurfit's legacy be? Do you think? I think that he was somebody who created a real multinational. I think he 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 is the only Irish business person to create a, a number one business in a major area, uh, which is paper and packaging, which is an incredible achievement. And I think he'll be seen as somebody who is a trailblazer and a, an inspiration to to others, uh, the businessmen who came behind him. Okay, Tom Lance, thank you for joining us. Now, the issue of pensions is one that usually makes people's eyes glaze over, but funding your retirement securely is something that should not be ignored. Earlier today, specialist pension advisor Acuvest hosted a conference in Dublin on this important topic, and joining me to discuss the issues are its chairman, David Kingston, and Irish Times deputy business editor and in-house investment expert, Dominic Coyle. Let's start with you, David. Uh, What was your message to the conference today? Well, our message was essentially that uh, we've had pensions for a very long time, but we're going through a fair bit of trauma at the moment, moving from one system, the old defined benefit system, to defined contribution. Uh, and there's been a fair bit uh, really has gone wrong in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. And what's concerning us is that uh, I think pensions became driven more by technical things than by any overall picture of what was happening. And uh, it, we could have, and the industry could have and should have moved earlier. Uh, and we don't want to make the same mistakes again under the new regime, which is going to be a defined contribution regime. So really the main point that we were pushing was uh, make sure that you put sufficient resources into managing this thing properly. You have to have the technical resources, you'd end up buying them. But we've had a particular concern that... Uh, the people who act on behalf of the employee, that the employer and the trustee, haven't been putting enough resources into the actual management of these functions which they've outsourced to various providers. Mm, I think you were making the point that there's too much power on the sell side. Exactly. Isn't that the way the industry likes to have it? Well, from an industry point of view, that's true. Uh, well, in the short term, it's probably true. In the long term, it's going to create problems if, there's a, if, there's a, if it's unbalanced. And of course, you're a former chief executive of Irish Life, and some people might say, well, you know, David, with Irish Life, um, that Irish Life was one of the players which fostered this environment. You could say that. And, I mean, I, I, and what I'm doing at this stage, in a sense, is looking back on, I've been in the business 50 years, and the industry has done a huge amount right, but inevitably have done some things wrong. And uh, I think this is one thing we have done wrong. Uh, we've taking our eye off the ball in terms of actually looking at what was going on. One of the things I was quoting this morning was that in the last, in the 50 years that I've been in the business, uh, longevity for 65-year-old men has doubled when interest rates, long-term interest rates have halved. So it's inevitable in that situation that 
uh, you're going to have to do something because costs are going to be wildly different than they were when this business started out. Tell us a little bit about Accuvest uh, when it was started, what exactly it is you do and, and what's different about what you do as, as, as opposed to the traditional providers. We started Accuvest uh, 10 or 12 years ago now and started it really because frustration on the part of one of our one or two of us that you know, that pensions had got too technical, that people were concentrating on the wrong things. They were concentrating on things like relative investment performance instead of whether you were invested in the right things in the first instance, whether the proposition was correct. Uh, so I suppose what differentiates us is, by and large, we're people who've come from a managerial background, at least in recent times. So we've got technical knowledge of pensions, but we're by and large managerial rather than technical, which is where most of the industry And comes you're advising from. companies, is that it? Yes. Which type of companies? Uh, they would tend to be bigger companies. Uh, you, you can see some of them on our website. And you want to name a few names? Well, if you'd like... Um, some of the banks and uh, the construction uh, workers and uh, we've done work with a lot of the a lot of the a lot of the bigger right. companies. And, w- and what's different about the advice that you provide and what solutions do you think you can offer that are different? To well, what we've been trying to do is to engage senior, say, senior management, in particular in companies, in, in what the issues are uh, and. Uh, in particular, trying to make sure that you've got the right structure and you've also got something that can adapt and change because one of the problems with the previous regime, which is a wonderful regime, they have defined contribution, defined benefit pension schemes that work. They're wonderful, but if suddenly, they be, uh, not suddenly, if over a period they become simply too expensive, uh, then they don't work. And the sooner that something is done about that, the better. Yeah. Dominic, just moving to you, um, let's take up that issue of uh, fees. The industry, I suppose, stands accused of making it very confusing for individuals uh, to understand exactly how much they're paying for the pension advice. What's your what's your take on this? Well, it's not just my take. There's been several reports out on it. It's quite clear, um, and David's right when he says that the people who've been forgotten in pensions in Ireland have been the the members of schemes. Uh, the this, the pensions have largely been driven for the industry, and in the absence of any proper policy direction from government. Uh, but in, in relation to fees, it's it's interesting. The the recent the report last year by the department for the Department of Social Protection said that even trustees, many trustees who are supposedly somewhat versed in this area, were struggling to get proper information from the pension sector on exactly what the breakdown of costs was on their own plans. Uh, that same report did a rough estimation of what fees were in in the in the Irish schemes, and they averaged out at two point one eight per annum, percent per annum. Now, just to put that into comparison, last week in Britain, they announced a new regime for these workplace uh, auto-enrolment pensions that, they, that they've mm-hmm. introduced over there, that from 2015, for the default option, for the basic option, they'll be able to charge no more than 0.75%. Now, there are a little few extra like transaction charges and that. But so that's, basically that's the Irish charges are, are yeah. three times what, well, what they're going it. to be in the UK. Absolutely. And this, there was a the, the report that was done for the Department of Social Protection said that if you looked at individual PRSAs, for instance, these are these portable pensions mm-hmm. that have been introduced in Ireland not entirely successfully, the charges, the effective charges in the Irish system was taking between 21 and 30% of the value of those schemes over their lifetime. And what about the sum. performance then? I mean, maybe they're getting a greater performance in Ireland. What's the performance like? No, the, the performance has not been great in terms of comp- competition in performance between one scheme and another. 
the industry generally has suffered from the investment climate over the last decade. There's been two bad burns between the dot-com bubble and then the financial crisis. It's been an exceptional time, but but then again, uh, it does mean we have to look more closely at, at how we, we balance the, the, the portfolio of investments going forward. But having said that, the bigger complaint is that people are, are paying for uh, effectively activist investment, and what they're very much getting is passive investment. That and is it also fair to say that people sign up to pension schemes and then perhaps find that the lines of communication with their advisor um, just aren't there? There's huge confusion. There is no there is no proper attempt by the industry to explain in simple terms to people at the outset or during the life of their pension savings exactly what is happening, what choices are open to them, what are the factors they should consider. When when a financial provider is trying to sell you a mortgage or get you to switch your bank account, as has recently happened, you see lots of ads on TV, simplistic to the point of idiocy, some of them. But when it comes to pensions, for some reason, the same industry is absolutely incapable of explaining simply what it is trying to do and what mm. service it's offering. David, why is that? I think it's partly because of where it's come from, because it was certainly true. Defined benefit um, is, is of itself quite a complicated uh, product. And unfortunately, I think in the early days of defined contribution, people tended to copy what was going on in defined benefit. Def- there's no reason why defined contribution schemes should be either expensive or complicated, because fundamentally it's just a savings arrangement. Dominic was referring earlier on to what's happened in the UK. One of the things that happened in the UK budget is effectively they have said, no, you don't have to buy an annuity with uh, your contribution. It's so quite a reform, isn't it? It's a, very ser- it's a very major reform. It has all sorts of interesting implications as to you know, the contrast between how, how much do you trust individuals to mind their money and not run out when they're 83 and uh, fall back on the state. But but fundamentally, I agree with what they've done, uh, and I because and I think it comes back to the fact that you simply must simplify the thing. Uh, there's no point in expecting people to make complex investment decisions and giving them a hundred funds to choose from because, okay, there may be two or three people who are going to do that in a hundred, but for the vast majority of people, that's not realistic. It's far better to have uh, one or two or three or four relatively cheap options and keep it simple uh, make it clear to people you've got to put a reasonable amount of money in or you won't ever get a reasonable amount of money out and that uh, and as I said we need a lot more pressure on the buy side we need more strength on the buy side to make sure that the, the you know the costs on the sell side which would happen in any normal business would get get driven down mm. it's one of the it's one of the dangers and it is true sort of my experience of financial services generally is that uh, there is a tendency to make things more complex in order to and they need to be than they need to be and part of that is to high charges no doubt. and dominic just on the there is a, p- a potential pensions time bomb for the state isn't there as well the, the old age pension and indeed public sector uh, pensions how are we going to fund this into the future with people living longer? There, there, there are several issues on that front. Uh, yes, people are living longer. Uh, money's not being provided. They're not saving sufficient to, to provide for themselves, most particularly in the new defined contribution schemes where effectively your pension, you, you and your employer will put so much money into a scheme and the pension that's available to you at the end depends on how that the investment performance on that is a far cry from the pension promise on the defined benefit where you knew that if you worked so many years with a company, and you retired on a certain salary, you could guarantee what you, what you would uh, what you would receive. 
but there are other problems in the sense that uh, people's old age pension in this country is drawn is relies on the social insurance fund social insurance fund last year or the year before last received payments of 8 billion mostly in terms of PRSI contributions it ran a 1.5 billion shortfall that year alone KPMG which ran an audit it's a regular audit that's run on that scheme uh, for 2011 said that if you work that out to 2066 which is the pension mm. time frame for, for a lot of people who are starting work now then that, that shortfall will be somewhere in the region of four, 324 billion that's not sustainable government in this country has done absolutely nothing to address that the only thing they've done in pensions of any substance in the last couple of years is impose a levy on it which makes it even less likely that people are going to put money into savings or, or save for their retirement it, there's, there's just paralysis of, of, of policy in this country. You compare it with what the UK has done, where yeah. whether you agree with it or not, they are actually making decisions and implementing them. This government is, and the previous government in this country is doing absolutely nothing. David, is that sustainable into the long term? No, it's not. Uh, and it needs a pretty radical approach. It's not just to... I mean, pensions, in a sense, is just part... It's a, it's a reflection of income and how you spend your income over over your lifetime. And we're going to have to go through some pretty fundamental changes in that regard. Just talking to somebody earlier on about how do you change work practices because the truth of the matter is that it's inconceivable in the future that younger people are going to be able to retire at 60 or 65 and anything that they can live on. They're going to have to have alternative sources of income. They're going to have to work later and patterns of work are going to change. I'm not sure that, that companies uh, will want to keep people on their books you know, until they're 70 or 75. Uh, the evidence that we've seen is that the the period in which people last in companies is, if anything, getting less. But, there, but we need to get used to a society in which uh, you know, part-time work, series of work, is much easier and is, uh, uh, is helped. Uh, because people retiring at 65 in the future are not going to have, they're not going to get any money from the state, they're not going to get any money from their, they're not going to get sufficient money from from their pension. And David, just to close, what advice would you have for a 25-year-old perhaps thinking of a pension for the first time, or perhaps not, um, and a 45-year-old in mid-cycle who might start worrying about their retirement income? I think think it's important uh, to save, I think it's important to save enough uh, Dominic has rightly pointed out the difference between the UK and Ireland, where in the UK they've done these things recently which are really encouraging people to, to build up a pot of money that they may be able to use for different purposes, not necessarily to buy an annuity for themselves at 70. In Ireland, we've been going in the opposite direction. OK, David Kingston, Dominic Coyle, thank you for joining us. That's it for this week's show. I'd like to thank my guests Tom Lyons, Dominic Coyle and David Kingston, my producer Sinead O'Shea and sound engineer James Davis. This podcast can be subscribed to for free via iTunes and is also available via SoundCloud and on the Irish Times website. My colleague Tom Lyons will be in the chair again next week with more insights into Irish business. Until then, take care and goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 